Well, it's a welcome surprise. Our attendance has doubled since we started singing this morning. And so looking out here, there's like a mass of people. Now, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to James chapter 4 is where we're going to be at this morning. And for those of you who were not here earlier as we got rolling, I want to say happy Mother's Day to those moms in the room this morning. Um, you are a blessing to our church and a blessing to your families and a blessing to your children and your husbands. And we thank God for you this morning. Uh, in James chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. The text uh, that we're going to be digging into is uh, verses 10 to 12. And so it's going to be on the screen. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there. If so, uh, you go ahead and turn to it so you can reference back to it as we work through the text together. But in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, the text reads as follows. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The mission of our church uh, from the time that I arrived almost a year ago this weekend Uh, The mission of our church has been to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into our neighborhoods and around the world. That's what we're aiming at. We want to be a gospel people who help shape gospel people, who send out gospel people to do what God is doing here locally, nationally, and internationally. That's our vision for our church. And there's perhaps no better place, someone argued there's no better place to start whenever you start having the conversation about shaping gospel people, shaping disciples of Jesus than the book of James. And here's why, because all throughout the pages of the book of James, we've seen it so far and we'll continue to see it as we press through it, we see this reality surface for us from the words that James writes, because James continually is contrasting a profession of faith versus possession of faith. James is saying there are some who have a profession of faith and they say they believe certain things about who Jesus is and they say they believe certain things about the reality of who we are, but then there are other people who actually possess faith and they're active with it. They do stuff with it. They actually, it shapes and forms the realities of their life. It's not a faith that's that, that they have by addition to where they've got all the priorities of their life kind of in this big circle and faith is their faith in Jesus is another priority they add somewhere along that continuum. But rather, their faith is at the center of their life and it radiates out and influences and shapes everything else. That's the kind of faith that James is talking about when he talks about the contrast between a mere profession versus a true possession of faith. And in the particular place that we found ourselves the last several weeks, James has really been pressing on this this issue of whether or not those of us who make a profession of faith really have possession of faith gets expressed by how we use our words. James has been saying it for two chapters now, right? In chapter 3, he talks about how we use our words. Chapter 4, he talks about whether or not we're pursuing peace and unity. We're planting seeds of righteousness, seeking to harvest peace in the context of the body. And here again, James comes to press on how we're utilizing our words, what we're saying to each other. And James is saying that what you say, what comes out of your mouth is a prime indicator of whether or not you merely profess to have faith in Jesus or you actually truly possess faith in Jesus because it begins to inform your conversations and the things that you say and not only things that you say but how you say them and so that's where we are this morning 
And so in this particular text, what James is going to tell us, he's going to say basically there's two things in this text that he says that are completely out of step for those who truly possess faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't do these things. James draws a boundary and he says these are out of bounds for some, somebody who truly possesses faith in Jesus. And then he tells us what the root of both of those things are in our lives and how to dig it up. So that's what we want to see this morning. Right? We want to continue this journey through James and see whether or not we are gospel people who are helping shape gospel people to send out gospel people. And the way we know that is whether or not we truly possess faith or we're just professing faith. There are perhaps some of us who have checked boxes all of our lives. But the question is, not only are you checking boxes, but are you moving boxes? Is there activity in your life that is radiating forth from this declaration of allegiance and affection that you have for Jesus? And James says, one of the ways you know is by what you say and how you say it. And so what are the two things that James tells us are completely out of step with someone who possesses faith in Jesus? The first one is this. James says that condemnation of our brothers is completely out of step with true faith condemnation of our brothers or condemnation of other people around us is completely out of step, James says, with true faith. If you notice in the text, James says that we shouldn't judge our brother or we shouldn't judge, in verse 12, our neighbor, he talks about. And whenever he says that, James, I think we've got to first of all understand what James is not saying before we can understand what he is saying. James is not saying when he says that we shouldn't judge our brother or we shouldn't judge our neighbor that we can never make any kind of moral evaluation about whether or not someone, what someone is doing is wrong or right, true or false. He's not saying that you can't make moral evaluations. That's not at all what James is saying. He's saying you can't look out in people's lives and go, man, they are off course or they are involved in sin. That's not what James is saying about making judgments about people, about their lifestyles or their convictions. In fact, if you go back into Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 7, 1, most folks will want to point back there and go, James is saying very, something very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, when he says, judge not that you will not be judged. And there's lots of folks who want to point to that, and they want to say, see there, it's in the Bible, you shouldn't judge people at all, right? Judge not or you're going to be judged. And James says, don't judge your brother or don't judge your neighbor. But essentially what James and Jesus are saying, uh, it, it cannot be that we can't look out and make moral evaluations of people. And here's why. Because both of them do it. Both Jesus in his teaching says, this is right and this is wrong. He makes a, draws a line. He says, here's a moral evaluation. Or James, all throughout his book, has issued and levied commands about things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do. So neither James nor Jesus, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, he says it over and over and over again, there are certain things that you should not do, certain things that you should repent of and turn away. And James says the same thing. So they can't be saying, when they say that we shouldn't judge, they can't be saying you can't make moral evaluations on people's lifestyles or their convictions. But man, there are so many in our culture who want to say every time we make a moral evaluation and we say this is right or this is wrong, they want to push back and they want to say, right, there's people in the, in the, in the culture and people in the church who want to push back and say, that's, here's my whisper point voice, right? You can hear it maybe over the rain. That's what's wrong with all you Christians. All you do is go around pointing fingers and judging everybody. You ever gotten that response from somebody? 
as you wade into a conversation about particular choices that they're making or a particular path that they're headed down or particular convictions that form the foundation for their lives. They want to point the finger and say, that's what's wrong. That's why I hate the church. That's why I left the church. It's because all you people do is judge. All you people do is criticize. All you people do is make moral evaluations. You shouldn't make moral evaluations. You shouldn't judge in that kind of capacity. But here's, here's the reality. If, if people want to, when people say that to you, I hope you know how to respond to that. Okay? If you don't, I'll tell you real quick. Here's how you respond to that. When people say, listen, that's the problem with all you Christians. All you do is judge and tell people what they're doing is wrong and what, what this guy's doing is wrong. Right? You shouldn't tell anybody what they're doing is wrong. And if somebody says to you, you shouldn't make moral evaluations about somebody's lifestyle or their convictions, if somebody says that to you, then all you have to do is turn around and say to them, well, you can't say what you just said to me. Because what you're saying to me is a moral evaluation. You're saying, if I can't make moral evaluations about what somebody's doing is right or wrong, then you're saying you're making a moral evaluation. You're telling me that I am immoral because I'm making a moral evaluation, right? And so it's utterly contradictory at best and and completely hypocritical at worst whenever somebody says you shouldn't make moral evaluations because for them to say you shouldn't make moral evaluations they're making a moral evaluation right for them to say there, there aren't any objectives like that they're saying there is an objective this one objective that you've got to submit and bow to and so James is not saying you should never make moral evaluations but man we feel that don't we in our context particularly as our cult, the culture around us becomes more and more and more post-Christian. And there are more and more people who subscribe to other foundational convictions in their life that determine their beliefs and behaviors. We get that retort more and more and more frequently as we wade into conversations with people. You might see Facebook blow up with these conversations and dialogue about people pointing their finger at the church saying the church just judges and tells people what they're doing is wrong. And as a result, many churches, many churches have erred on one side of the spectrum. Either they have erred on the far left and they've just refused to call anything sin. They refuse to call anything wrong. And so they just, they just affirm everyone and they're very open and they don't draw any lines. And they say, you can basically do whatever you want to do. And you're still loving God. Right? Because you're being true to yourself. And so... They, they, they don't say anything about what's right and wrong, but you've got churches over here on the other hand, on the far right-hand side of the spectrum, that are standing with picket signs, right, and screaming through megaphones at people with very condemnatory phrases at them. And so, you, man, where are the churches that are somewhere in between that would say, yes, what people are doing is wrong. That, that, that lifestyle, that behavior, those beliefs are out of step with what God with what God commands in Scripture, but they're doing so in a way that's filled with humility and that's filled with love and that's filled with compassion and kindness. See, Jesus and James aren't saying you can't make moral evaluations. What they are speaking against, and the word in this particular context, the Greek word underneath it that shows up in verse 11 and in verse 12, functions in this context with the equivalency of condemnation. Jesus says you can't look at someone based on what they believe in the present or what they're doing in the present. You can't look at them and write them off and say there's no hope for you. You can't write off the relationship and say there's no way that you're going to make it. 
Jesus says, you don't have the authority. James says, you don't have the right or the room to stand over them as judge, jury, and executioner to condemn them because you don't know enough. Your knowledge about where they are and where they've come from and what God is doing in them is insufficient to make that kind of judgment. Sure, absolutely you can make moral evaluations about right and wrong, but Jesus and James both say you can't stand on a high platform and be judged jury and executioner in people's lives and condemn them and write them off. And James says that's absolutely out of step with the true possession of faith. Second thing that James says is out of step with the true possession of faith is this. He says that character assassinations are out of step with true faith. Character assassinations are out of step with true faith. And in my translation, the word uh, in verse 11 that says speak evil against, some of your translations render it slander. It's basically, it, it, there's, there's three, Greek word, or three English words in my translation that translate a single Greek word that basically means that, to slander or to defame someone. And there's basically two ways you can do that, right? As we ramp up into the political campaign season where everyone's going to be running ads, um, oftentimes the ads that they run aren't necessarily about their values and their vision, but about how terrible this other person is. And so it's just a lot of defamation and slander that they issue. But there's basically two ways that you can slander someone, whether it be in a political arena or in a personal arena. And that's either you can tell half-truths or outright lies about that individual Or you can utilize the truth from their past in such a way that you use it as a weapon against them. And you assassinate their character and seek to lay them low. And what you're saying might be absolutely true, but the way in which you say it, the way in which you use it, you don't use it to redeem, you use it to punish. Or you don't use it to heal, but you use it to hurt. You don't use it to pull them in, but you use it to push them away and to defame them and slander them and speak evil against them. And James says a character assassination is absolutely out of step with true faith. You can use the truth in one of two ways. You can use it to hunt people or you can use it to heal people. Listen, we have a, a, a burgeoning custom knife manufacturer in our presence, right? Or at least his wife is here this morning. Not sure where he is. Maybe he's home making knives, right? But a burgeoning custom knife manufacturer, right? You get on his Facebook page, it's like hashtag flat grind, hashtag G10, hashtag stabilized wood, hashtag custom knives, hashtag gas skill knives, right? All over his Facebook page, all these pictures of these incredible knives that he's making. But the majority of the knives that Matt is making and he crafts, and they're incredible pieces of craftsmanship, but what he's making, essentially, the people that I know that are buying them are using them to cut things open and eat them, right? So they want to cut, up, cut open deer like that they kill out in the woods. They want to use it to hunt stuff. And there's a big difference between someone who's purchasing a knife to go out and hunt and slay and kill versus a surgeon who's using a knife to perform a procedure that's going to give, give life. It's going to heal people. Listen, a hunter uses a knife to slay and to cut open and to cut down. But a surgeon uses a knife to repair and to rebuild and to redeem and to heal. See, there's two ways you can use the truth. 
There's two ways you can use the truth. What you are saying might be absolutely true, but are you wielding the truth in order to slay someone or are you wielding the truth in order to redeem someone? There's the question. It's not just in what you say, but how you say it and why you say it. And James has a character assassination where you use the truth, even very true things, to slay other people. He says it's absolutely out of step with true faith. So how do you know if you're hunting people or healing people? Let me give you several diagnostic tools here. First of all, there's a pattern in your life that when you speak truth to people, it crushes them. It crushes them. Now listen, let me be careful because there are some people that you could do it in the most loving and humble and gentle way and you could speak truth to them and it's going to rupture the relationship and it's going to push them away and they're going to be in despair and it's going to crush them no matter how you approach them. But listen, if there's a pattern in your life and you look back in your history, right? If you pull up your history in your browser and you see all these, in your relational browser, and you see all these relationships that have been severed because you opened your mouth and spoke truth and you pushed people away as opposed to pulled people in and you slayed someone as opposed to healing them, if there's a pattern of ruptured relationships in your history, there's a good chance that you're using the people to, using truth to hunt people as opposed to heal them. There might be occasions where there's an individual in your life that just can't, can't handle the truth, right? No matter how lovingly and graciously you present it. But if there's a pattern of ruptured relationships in your history, you're probably using the truth to hunt rather than heal. In addition, in addition, you have a fault-finding mode of heart and mind. In other words, you're always looking. You're always looking for something to critique and something to criticize and something to speak out against. You're rarely speaking out for things, but often speaking out against things because you have a fault-finding habit of your heart. And you're constantly irritated with people because they don't agree with you. It may, it, it, oftentimes it might even be over secondary issues, whether it be morally or theologically, but they don't agree with you, and so you write them off, and you're irritated with them constantly. They have a fault-finding habit of heart where you're always looking to critique and always looking to criticize and always looking to judge and always looking to find truth that you can use as a weapon against someone. In addition, in addition, you speak the truth about someone to everyone other than them, right? And so as opposed to going to that brother or sister and saying, here's what I see and here's where my concerns are, you talk to everyone else around them about what you see and what your concerns are. There's a good chance that you're using the truth to assassinate their character in the eyes of people who are around them because you haven't gone to them. James says a character assassination is completely out of step with true faith. Condemnation and character assassinations have no place, James says, in the life of the church. But it's very interesting because I think James tells us that both of these things grow from the same root. They both grow off the same stem. And here's what it is. James says, both condemnation and character assassination stem from a lack of humility. They stem from a lack of humility. How can both of these things have the same root? Let me show you how. If you're going to look down upon someone and condemn them, right, or you're going to talk down to someone and assassinate their character, then you have got to have some kind of altitude. 
right? If you're going to look down and talk down, you've got to be up here and they've got to be down here. You've got to have some kind of altitude on them. You've got to be 30,000 feet above where they are if you're going to look down on them and talk down to them. That's the reality. You've, you've got to be elevated. If, the only way you can completely write someone off in condemnation or slander them with lies or the truth and assassinate their character is if you believe at some level that you are better than they are in some way, shape, or form. That's the only way you can look down on others and the only way you can talk down to others is if you believe there's something that sets you apart from them and makes you better than them in and of yourself. And this makes so much sense from the context because in the context, James doesn't contrast speaking evil and judging. He doesn't contrast that with loving others or telling the truth, but he contrasts it with humility. James doesn't prohibit speaking evil or slander or judging because it's a violation of love or because it's a violation of truth. He says because it's a violation of humility. Look in verse 10. What does James say? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, but who are you? Who's given you the altitude that you need to look down and talk down to others? Who are you? He says, if you were truly humble before God, you would have no altitude to look down, and you would have no altitude to talk down to other people. See, both of these things grow from the same root. And the only way, the only way that you can have enough altitude to look down or talk down to people is if you feel like you're better than them in some capacity. If you look around in the church and you go, man, right, I'm so much more committed to this church than all these other people. And it's very easy to look down on everyone else around you or talk down to or about everyone else around you. I'm the one who's committed to this marriage. So it's easy to look down on your spouse or talk down to your spouse if you feel like you're miles above in level of commitment and priority in the context of your marriage. Or it's easy to look down and say, man, look down and talk down on people whenever they're not engaged in Jesus' mission of sharing, shaping, and sending. You go, man, I'm so much more, I'm like fully ingrained in this deal. I'm talking to people about Jesus in my workplace and at my gym. But that person over there, they've never shared Jesus with anybody. I can't believe that. So you look down on them and you talk down to them. Why? Because some way, shape, or form, you feel like you're a step above. They're at the top of a high rise and you're in an airplane 30,000 feet above and you're looking down and talking down. Or somewhere inside you feel you're more knowledgeable than they are. You've got a higher intellect than they do. You've got more degrees hanging on your wall. You've studied more about this particular subject. And while you may have more knowledge, and that may very well be true, James says the only way that you can look down or talk down to someone is if you feel like that knowledge sets you above them in the eyes of God and puts you in a position to judge and assassinate their character. Or somewhere inside you feel you're more committed to doctrine than others and you believe your faithfulness to the Bible gives you the freedom to write people off over open-handed theological issues and speak evil against anyone who disagrees with you on those secondary issues. Or somewhere inside you feel you're more generous than everyone else around you. And I give more, I serve more, I contribute more. I engage more. And you feel somewhere inside that that sets you apart and that your generosity gives you the right to condemn and assassinate character. 
Or perhaps somewhere inside you feel that you treat people more fairly than others and you believe that your degree of justice grants you the platform to feel superior to and condemn those who have treated you wrong. James says the only way, the only way you can look down or talk down is if you have altitude and both of these things have the same root because there's a lack of humility. So how do we overcome this? How do we get the kind of humility that we need? Because James says, whenever you don't have that kind of humility, you set yourself up in a position to judge even the law, not just other people, he says in the text, but even the law. In other words, you look at the law and go, well, the law commands me not to slander other people, but it should have commanded me to do this because I know what's right, because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to assassinate their character. I'm going to condemn them. I'm going to write them off completely in that relationship. The law tells me not to do that, but I know better. This is what the law should have told me to do because I know what feels good for me. And he says, you set yourself up to judge even the law. So how do we get this kind of humility? And I think James tells us, he's gotta, he says, you've got to radiate your heart with the truth of who God is. That's the only way that this kind of humility comes. You've got to radiate your heart with the truth of who God is. And James tells us three things about who God is in this text that you have to radiate your heart with on a daily basis. Because only if you radiate your heart with the truth of who God is, because if you radiate your heart with the truth of who God is, it will lay you low and raise you up simultaneously. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will raise you up. He will lift you up. And when you radiate your heart with the truth of who God is, it will both cut you down and lift you up at the same time, simultaneously. There's no other truth that has the capacity or power to do what James says the truth of who God is has the capacity and power to do in your life. And here are the three things James says about God that we've got to radiate our heart with. First of all, he says he's the one who is the giver of the law. He's the lawgiver. And if he is the lawgiver, then he has the, is the only one who has the right to condemn someone under it. See, if the law didn't originate with you, then you can't stand in judgment over the law and say, the law did command this, but it should have commanded the other. He's the lawgiver. It didn't originate with us, but it originated with him. So he's the only one who has the power to condemn someone under the law because he's the only one who also has the knowledge necessary to issue that condemnation you don't I don't none of us do he's the lawgiver not only is the lawgiver second of all James says he's also the life giver he says he's the one who has the power to destroy and listen there is no one there's if, if you are the creator of a right there's no one who can go to Matt Gaskill and say your knife stinks, right? It should be burned in the fire, crushed underneath, right? Why? Because he is the one who created it. Only he is the one who has the ability to scrap it and say, I'm done. He's the only one who has the ability to destroy it and say, it's over. And because God is the one who has created us, he is the only one who has the power to look at us and say, destruction the only person but I want you to know what the final thing that he says here because here's where the hope is not only is he the lawgiver, not only is he the life giver who has the power of death and life in his hands but he is the only one who is powerful enough to save 
That's what James says. Listen to what he says. I'll read it to you again in James chapter 4, in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. He's a lawgiver, a life giver, but he's also the only one who has the power to save us from the condemnation that we stand under because we are violators of the law that he has given. And here's the amazing thing this morning. The most amazing thing that, that you, can, you can think all of your life. You can be the angels and have infinite knowledge and still not wrap your mind around why it is that God has done what he has done. Because the judge, the judge was judged for you. The one who has the power to condemn, the one who has the power to destroy said, let me be condemned in their place. Let me be destroyed and ripped to shreds for them. Man, and when you see that, when you see that the only one who has the authority to, 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 to issue a judgment on the law because he's the one who has given it, when you see that the only one who has the authority to condemn or to destroy because he's the one who's created us, he's the only one who knows our true purpose. And he can say, they've, they've, that's not what I created them for. He's the only one who can do that. And yet, whenever he has the authority and the power and the right to do so, and yet the judge is judged for you so that he might save. It's absolutely mind-blowing. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, Verses 25 and 26, he tells us that God's forbearance and his patience, he says that they were exemplified to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just, Paul says, the one who executes justice and judgment, but it's simultaneously the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Paul says, here is what God has done. The one who has the power to condemn and the power to destroy and the power to issue judgment is the one who came under that judgment to be the justifier of all who would look to him in faith. And that, my friends, is good news. And when you radiate your heart with that truth, when you radiate your heart with the truth of the fact that I am not the lawgiver, it didn't originate with me, it originated with God, and you radiate your heart with the, fact, with the truth of the fact that you don't have the authority, the right, the room, or the power to destroy. You don't. I don't. And when you radiate your heart with the truth of the fact that God is the only one who has the power to save, and He has saved. And He has done it. He has executed salvation by moving from around the judge's chair with the gavel and pronouncing condemnation upon Himself and dying in our place. And then you look out and you go, how can I assassinate my brother's character? The same grace that saved him. The same grace that rescued her. The same grace that redeemed is the same grace that I've found and has found me. When you radiate your heart with that truth and you look out and you go, how can I condemn? How can I write off that relationship? How can I say there's no hope for that person? I can't. 
Because but by the grace of God go I. James says, one of the markers of whether or not you really possess faith as opposed to just professing faith. You may have walked an aisle as a kid and you may have checked a doctrinal statement at some point when you joined a church. You may have said, yes, I believe all these things, but it might just be a doctrinal skeleton that's still hanging in your closet somewhere that has no flesh, that has no muscles, that has no ligaments, that has no tendons, that doesn't do anything. And James says, one of the markers... It's not only that you tell the truth, but how you use it. Do you use it to condemn? Do you use it to assassinate? Or do you use it to heal and repair? Man, what would it be like if we were a church that was so radically committed to the truth that we did not shy away from moral evaluations, but there was never a hint of self-righteousness and condemnation and character assassinations in our midst. I think that would look like a healthy body. And that's what I long for. Let's pray together. Father, we come today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for how applicable it is and how it punctures and it pierces and it divides even our motives. Father, there are some of us in the room who have assassinated others with truth. There's some of us in the room who have condemned others because we feel like we've got a greater degree of altitude than they. And Father, if that is us this morning, I pray that there may be repentance And Father, I pray that we would turn from just a profession of faith and there would be an actual possession of faith in our lives. Whereby we move out towards others, not afraid of the truth, but without even a hint or a whiff of condemnation or slander. Father, would you make us a church that's able to hold those two things together because of the gospel, because of the truth of who you are. And I pray that we would would daily radiate our hearts with that truth and that your spirit would bring about transformation and change in our lives that would make us the most honest and yet humble people in our city. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.